Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. The evolution of London's Olympic Park after the Games is still unfurling. Selena Mason, formerly responsible for the delivery of the post-Games Transformation Master Plan for the Olympic Delivery Authority, is now Director of Master Planning at Lendlease. She takes us on a tour of the most recent mixed-use addition to the park. I'm Selena Mason. I'm Director of Master Planning at Lendlease. And uh, I work across all of our projects, but obviously particularly at the front end of all our projects. So the big master plans that we're currently working on. So for instance, Houston and Birmingham, which we've just started. Thamesmead is a bit further down the track, but then also other ones that we're working on in the midst of delivery, like obviously Elephant Park and IQL. So uh, maybe you could tell us a bit about where we are today. We're, we're sitting outside the Aquatic Centre on the huge expansive bridge that connects Westfield at Stratford across into the Olympic Park and the Olympic Stadium, which is obviously now emblazoned with West Ham colours. Um, so it, uh, it's a stadium that is for both football and athletics. And this route that goes through International Quarter London, IQL, um, is one of the big kind of processional routes to and from the stadium. And you've had quite a long relationship with this site, so maybe you could tell us a bit about your, your work before that. Yeah, I started working um, for the Olympic Delivery Authority in 2007, so we won the, the bid in summer 2005. And uh, I joined the ODA sort of just as we were in the process of uh, sorting out the master plan to then put to the planning authority. Uh, it was consented later that year. So. I guess I've had the privilege of working on the project from really early stages. I mean, obviously, it went way, way back beyond that. Um, but uh, in terms of delivery from the master plan right through to after the Games and completing what we called the Transformation Master Plan in 2014, which was the bit in between the Games Master Plan and the Legacy Master Plan that came behind us, behind it. So. Um, yeah, I sort of, I know, I well, at that point, I knew this park inside out, but obviously every time you come back here, it changes a little bit more. And um, now that I'm at Lendlease, obviously I've, I've returned to work on IQL here uh, occasionally. And um, yeah, as I say, every time you come back to this place, it cha it's changed and the people that are here have changed and um, more work is going on. You can hear in the background the noise of contract construction, which is not just IQL, it's also um, Stratford Waterfront as well. So uh, I also was involved in between 2014 and then joining Lendlease in 2017. I worked um, on the master plan for UCL East as well, which is going to be starting behind the Aquatic Centre in the future as well. So yeah, kind of on and off in the last since 2007, been heavily involved in this place. So if you take us back to 2007, what, where would we be sitting here? What would this place be like? Well, this, this we wouldn't be here at all. It was, um, it, was a, uh, it was a really mixed bag site. It was extraordinary in many, many ways. Um, kind of a, a bit of the industrial heart of Stratford, so some big remnants of industry. Um, there was a, I was just saying to, 
uh, Andrea here that we there's the Yardley factory was just behind us on the old on the west on the site just behind us and that's uh, where Acme Studios had uh, hundreds of artists in there and Carpenters Lane went from Stratford High Street right through the park out into Hackney Wick but it was a wild and slightly scary scary place then and uh, the river was kind of hidden and secret not many people knew much about it it was very difficult to navigate around it not many connections through the place but there were some amazing moments in it as well the um, manor garden allotments were in here next to the river a very secret and beautiful little allotment um, site right by the river and uh, there was also a cycling track as well which is now obviously now associated with the velodrome, completely transformed. So there were moments of intense activity and use, but they were somewhat hidden. And there was a lot of very degraded ex-industrial land that was used in very marginal ways. I mean, people probably have heard about the Fridge Mountain. There was a lot of discarded stuff on the site. And yeah, difficult to connect. It was also the two communities on either side. On one side you had um, Hackney, and on the other side, Leighton. Actually, probably it would have taken about a 40 minute walk to get from one side to the other, because just the connections weren't in place. Very few connections and bridges across the river and the canal. Uh, so it was, it was wild and somewhat abandoned. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. <laughs> but it had its beautiful moments. You know, I don't think anyone could say, but I remember talking to lots of people at the time and saying, describing it as wild and abandoned, but they would often point out, actually not entirely, there were some moments of, of, of loved use, like the allotments and the cycle track. So those people, we obviously had to talk a lot to about how we would um, replace their, what they had there. And they've, they're back on the sites, so obviously the, the cycle track's back up in the north and the allotments are now down in the south. So, um, yeah, a wild place. So the Olympic vision was to to knit this in to make it more of a destination. Do you want to talk about why why this is selected really for that for that bid? Yeah, I mean it, it's it's. I mean as I say, it was it was the interesting thing about it, and perhaps part of the reason why it was so abandoned was that it sat between. It was on the boundary of several boroughs, so not just Hackney and Newham. It was also on the boundary of. Um, Tower Hamlets as well and because it was kind of their back garden if you like they can't they sort of left it and didn't really pay a great deal of attention to it and with the river running through it as well and poor connectivity it just it was this inert environment but that obviously provided a huge opportunity for um, for the LDA and the GLA to identify it as an area of potential change because clearly it had huge capacity what it needed was um, thoughtful consideration about what what kind of infrastructure would, was needed to unlock it for those opportunities. Now, I think very early on, the LDA and GLA were thinking along the lines of let's let's create a, a better, more accessible employment area for um, for manufacturing and technology. And um, but then ideas started to emerge about um, this kind of a transformative event type opportunity and obviously the Olympics was was the one and but it was always seen as something that would be instrumental to that change rather than the change in itself that the the Olympics were there would be invested in to create the opportunity to invest in the 
environment in such a way that you could then unlock it for opportunities for London and for this part of London in particular to achieve better outcomes. And, you know, I think that was what was in the back of the mind of most of those politicians in the early days involved people like Tessa and obviously Ken Livingstone. They were thinking, this is a part of London which has huge potential. You know, Stratford is probably one of the best connected parts of, of London, but it's not that the people who live here don't have similar opportunities or life chances of the rest of London. So how, what can we do to give them the opportunities that others in London take for granted? Access to open space, access to better jobs, uh, access to better education. And um, so this obviously, because it was abandoned, but there was plenty of room, it felt like it was an opportunity to really do that. So, so that was the starting point. You know, how do you create a master plan that creates all these opportunities? And, and I think that that remains the most important question, I think, that everyone asks themselves when they're involved in this project. What are we doing to transform the chances of those around for the better? The games were a very successful moment, and then the park kind of closes after that, and it becomes yeah. time for that, yeah. that transformation. Yeah. How did, what did that master plan look like, and what did that, and, and how did you try to, to transition it from event space to permanent place yeah well that interesting enough that was something that was in our thinking right from from the early stages so for instance I mean sitting on this bridge where we happen to be on the bit of the bridge that goes over the railway line so um, and building over rail, railway lines is incredibly difficult you only really want to do it once um, so this therefore is a bridge that's sized for the Olympic Games so for people coming into and going out of the park at the same time so it's very very wide um, but it's, it's it, ordinarily you wouldn't want this kind of scale of space. But if you head beyond the aquatic centre, the bridge is much narrower. So when it was built for the games, it was built at this width, but half of the bridge was a temporary structure. So we were thinking very early on about what kind of size of infrastructure is necessary for legacy as opposed to what's necessary for the games. So you size the permanent infrastructure for legacy and then you add in temporary infrastructure for the games. And most, and whether that's, whether you're thinking about um, a venue or whether you're thinking about a bridge or the width of a road or whatever part you're thinking about, that's how, that was the mindset we tried to always think through. What do we need for the future as opposed to what do we need for the games? Which meant that a lot of the transformation master plan was in some, to some extent already created for us, a lot of those big decisions about what comes and goes was already implicit and embedded into the way that we delivered the get for the games. Uh, the next step in that master plan was really to understand how can you how can you open the park out and create it, make a welcoming place for people over the short and medium term when you know that actually a lot of the park is still not going to be built out. A lot of the development will take many, many years and you know you can see around us it's still it's still being built and actually has gone through a number of iterations in terms of what's being built as well. Uh, so we were thinking that, so a lot of the thinking was about um, using landscape on both a term, permanent and temporary basis to create exciting and delightful and welcoming connections into the park. Um, and starting to open out the park across all its boundaries as well. So we did introduce some new infrastructure after the games. There were bridges, there were a couple of bridges built over the 
uh, the river on the east, on the western side, to connect Hackneywick and Fish Island into the park, which obviously they didn't, we didn't need that during the game, so those were postponed till afterwards. Um, so it was, I think the thinking about transformation was really, it was kind of master planning from the perspective, I always think of master planning as four-dimensional, you have to think about time as part of the process, and if you don't think about time, probably your master plan won't stand the test of time. Uh, because you really do need to think about how how places can change, not just what it's going to look like right at the end, but actually how it's going to look like tomorrow and next week and next year. Because uh, really I think a lot of the early introduction into these sort of places is sort of what sets, sets people's view about a place. It's quite difficult to get back that first impression. So we spent a lot of time and energy trying to think about how we could make those connections into the park as easy as possible, how we can make them as delightful as possible so that people could come in and enjoy the park and get into the heart of it without feeling like it was an interminable connection getting from the edge into the centre. Because all of, all of the edge conditions basically have to go through uh, in effect development platform, the areas where there isn't anything. It would be hoarded off areas for development. One of the things about the park that I always notice is that it is so vast. Mm. So it is, even when you are connected in from a community, it's sometimes a very long walk to go to the aquatic centre, to you know, yeah. this kind of... Yeah. And has that always been a challenge? Is that the scale's actually very big? Yeah, I think that is probably one of the defining challenges of this place, actually, because it's... And interestingly enough, I think it's also, again, this is a factor of time, because I think people's perception of how distant places are is very much about what's on the journey to get there. And if there's not there, if there's not a great deal that's on that journey, you kind of do tend to have a perception that it's a bit interminable. Um, so again, it's about thinking about a sequence of um, how can you make how can you make it a little bit more delightful, a little bit more interesting, a little bit more intriguing, so that the journey itself feels easier and not quite so interminable and it's really challenging to get that right particularly when you're dealing with big chunks of stuff like this great big bridge here where actually we couldn't you can't plant trees on it and you can't put many buildings on it you have to kind of you have to think about things in a very um, you have to be inventive and and use smaller interventions and and programming as well you know, activi activation activities to try to make the journey feel a little bit more, a little bit easier, a little bit more interesting. What have been some challenges in getting kind of local people to, to embrace the park? Do they see it as theirs or do some of them still see it as kind of a spaceship that's landed in their neighborhood? I, I think all of the indications, all of the conversations certainly I've been involved in uh, indicate that people do see it as theirs. And I think that was again one of the early um, thoughts about it was to create um, a park that did feel like it was a park for for everyone around it so the investment in children's play for instance I think is probably one of the most instrumental things to that so uh, you know we all know how um, fantastically attractive fountains and play areas are so the fountains on the southern end of the park have been fantastic for really getting people into the park on a sunny day and um, you know, any, everybody loves that, and it appeals to all different types of family. There's no, there are no thresholds there. And uh, equally, up at the north end of the park, the um, Tumbling Bay Playground as well has been hugely successful. And we designed that with 
a wide range of children in mind, so not just small children and toddlers, but also older children as well. So there's lots of different types of play and more challenging for older children. So, so again, to attract the local community in, you kind of need to, you need to give them the invitation. And so one of the ways you can do that is by creating those kind of places. I think also the, the design focusing on the natural environment and create, you know, the, the interest in the seasons and the way in which the nature takes on its own seasonal changes. I think that also creates a place that uh, people are always intrigued to come and see. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's part, part of the story is creating that, those moments inside that are attractive to a wide range of people. But then obviously as you build more development around the edges, the community is changing as well. And so maintaining that invitation is obviously an important part of it. The Olympic um, Stadium obviously has its own seasonal story <laughs> around it becoming West Ham's yeah. um, space and needing to find some, something to put it in. But how have other bits of that Olympic legacy in some ways been problematic maybe to, to making it as opposed to not having had the Olympics here and just tackling it as a, as a piece of development? Mm. Um, has, has that legacy ever been problematic? I think that uh, it's an interesting question because I think you know it, it's it's very evident just for the scale of the um, the infrastructure that was necessary to unlock this park that I don't think you could you would never have got to where you are today without that kind of incredibly muscular intervention. Um, so you know I think in in in. In all respects, it seems to me that, that, that to unlock this kind of area, that's, you, you just need to have that kind of really ambitious determination to make a difference and to change at that sort of scale. Um, and we were very careful about the business cases for all of the buildings that we put on the site, that you know, there was no point in building stuff that would become a white elephant. I mean, obviously, I think the story of the stadium is one that has been discussed on many occasions. You might do a podcast on that alone, so perhaps won't go there. But um, you know, I think all of the all of the venues that we stand have become very successful, and uh, and are driving a certain type of functionality into the park as well, which is more about culture and events. Which I think most master plans at this sort of scale, you do need that kind of um, shift of focus in terms of people coming and going. You can't just rely on. Um, purely commercial or residential development to make that kind of place feel like it's got a lie it's it's buzzy and it's got stuff happening in it you know if you look, I think there are lots of places in London where where we have relied almost exclusively on residential and it kind of it's not creating the kind of places that you need and so events and um, activation through sports buildings it seems to me it, they're great places and ways of bringing people together, whether it's kind of immediate community or whether it's on, on a sort of regional area, regional scale, like the football, or whether it's more international. It creates a life of its own that I think adds value to this place, that makes it very specific. Um, and that's going to be played out, I think, over quite some time, I would think. So you had the aquatic centre that scaled down quite, quite elegantly to yeah. its current use, yeah. and the velodrome that is continuing perhaps not as buzzy as the aquatic centre is, is 
carrying on in the stadium, if you were to advise uh, another Olympic city, what would you suggest was perhaps the the unrealistic expectation around the stadium? What would I your advice be? <laughs> Speaking to another city altogether? Yes. Um, I think it really is about being quite pragmatic and focused on a business plan for the future. And as ever, where you get the public and private sector working together, in this case, obviously, football and um, athletics and um, the locality here, I think, you know, those, those conversations aren't always easy. Um, but, you know, it has been... It, it, it's always going to come down to getting your getting your thinking straight from the earliest stage. And obviously, I think with the Olympics, clearly there was a timetable. Decisions were being had to be made. You have to move forward. You have to have momentum. You can't you can't you can't wait for everyone to gather together to make to make a decision when you need to get something open at a certain point. So, um, so maybe a clearer legacy and pragmatic legacy plan before, before pre-design. Yeah. Yes, and to some extent, you know, I think they're all, they're all effort. I remember there were huge efforts to get that sorted. But at some point you have to make a decision because you've got to build a stadium for the games. Uh, you know, so, so that story is one that, um, you know, it, it, took, it took a course because time was a factor. And uh, you know that's 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 the story. And now it's a it's a it's a great stadium now. So let's <laughs> there's a there's a lot there. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, there's a big story there. I'm sure in terms of who can say what about it. But um... oh my gosh, that's a runaway. Oh dearie me, <laughs> runaway golf cart. No, the kid ran after it and jumped on the back. He was, he was oh, he was running to jump onto it, and yeah, then like he missed it. Oh my gosh! Oh dear, dear, dear! What a hey, twit! We had a little bit of a moment there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hilarious! <laughs> what were we talking about? The stadium. So <laughs> I wish I'd seen that. So oh, brilliant! Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> You can probably see it on YouTube later. Yeah. Well, why did you get it? No, I think there. His friends did. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yes, I think we were we were talking about the stadium. So if I look at where the park is now at oh. this moment in time, yeah. uh, partway through transformation, how would you characterize its current state of, state of being? I think it's evolving, and uh, the really interesting thing. I mean, as I say, when you come back to these places, it always it's always changed. I think the the really interesting thing, or the thing that I kind of find myself thinking more and more about, is that um, master plans are not there as these things in aspect. In many respects, actually, a successful master plan is a master plan that should be capable of change, and you can't. I think on this sort of scale, you shouldn't imagine at the beginning of a process that what you see then is what you will see in the future. Uh, and to some extent, I, you know, I look around me and I can think that there's, whilst, whilst the ambition was very much there from day one and 
you know, the politics was incredibly sportive. People had a strong view about creating something extraordinary out of the games. Um, nevertheless, I think things like Stratford Waterfront, things like UCL coming to the site, the way in which here East has evolved, the way in which the village is changing, I think that a lot of that is all about how a place starts to take on a momentum and identity of its own, and it starts to become attractive in itself. And people start to actually, the, the ambition of those who started it kind of gets taken on by the ambition of others who can see, see opportunity there. And they can start, and the, so the transformation starts to take on momentum that goes way beyond anything originally anticipated at the beginning. So I think the, the wonderful thing in many respects about coming, coming back here and looking at this place is that you can, it, it feels like every time, the next time you come back, There'll be some. There'll be another layer on top of it. Somebody else will have had a great idea to say. Actually, I think there's an opportunity to do something even more interesting here, or even more radical. So, um, so the the I read a study recently that was around the kind of um, ethnic minority mix of the around the park, and that those using the North Park tended to be less diverse than the surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. And as this uh, community is changing and, and, and the local community perhaps isn't coming in as, as, as much as they should, I mean, is that, a, is that a, on your radar? Is that a concern with, you know, with the sense of um, whether this is being embraced by all communities mm -hmm. or not? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if, it's, if, if, if we're finding that there isn't that yeah, local people are not coming in here as much as perhaps we would have liked, then, then yes, I think it's got to be, we have to find other ways in which we can create that attraction, you know, that you can't, in a way, it's kind of one thing leads to another. You know, you've got to, you start off with an assumption, let's, let's invest in the park and create a place which families will love. Okay, get to that point. We find it's attractive to a certain number of people, but we're still not attracting others. Uh, so, what else do we need to do to get more people into it? And um, you know, a lot of it. I think a lot of it does have to do with the fact that the um, the connections from outside to inside are still in a state of being formed. You know, it's kind of creating those kind of easy streets where it just is comfortable and easy to walk down, and you know, it's it's no big deal to meander into the park. You know, that, it's that feeling of normalness, I think, that still isn't quite here yet um, and may take some time, particularly, I think, on the, from the eastern side where you've actually got probably a longer journey to get into the park than from uh, the west. I think, obviously, Hackney Wick and Fish Island are a little bit nearer. Um, plus, you're not crossing quite such um, sort of significant infrastructure. And obviously, the, the eastern side has got the railway lines along the edge of it. Um, but you know, it's got the school there. I think Chobham um, School is making a big difference there in terms of welcoming in the wider community into the park and creating a focal point for this wider context um, to start to, to embrace the place and make it into something that's about a community rather than this development or that. Inviting people in being really important. And I wonder if there's a need for more invitation a reason to a reason to come yeah absolutely and whether that's 
you know, whether that is activation or activities at the school, whether that's how can you get more uh, retail or uh, ground floor uses in at street level, um, understanding where those pinch points are in people's people's minds, you know, kind of getting to getting under the skin of why people are making certain decisions. I think that's you know this that's one of the things about moss planning is you you spend a lot of time looking at the macro and then having to investigate the micro and then and then I think the interesting thing about this place is obviously there's a lot now that it's got to a certain point it is we're starting to understand a lot more about how people are going to interact and how people are interacting with the place you know when you're doing a master plan in the early days you kind of you just make assumptions you sort of follow a certain type of rules and um, you know, and then now, now that people are actually using the place, we can actually really get under the skin of, did, did that work? Is that working as well as we expected? If it's not working quite as well as we expected, how can we make a difference? How can we change things? Um, Do you think we make assumptions that if you build a bridge from one community to, the, to another, that, that they'll walk over it and they might, and they might not? Yeah, of course we make that assumption. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and yes, they may not because they never have done before. Why would they now? So therefore, you have to you have to create destination within within the park. So part of that, obviously, was the um, the venues, but also uh, the park itself, and then the streets. What what happens on those streets as you come in? And the school, I think, again plays an important part in that. So um, yeah, we make lots of assumptions when we're doing a master plan, and that's kind of to some extent that's what master planning is about a little bit is kind of making making some broad assumptions that on the basis that if you create connectors people will use them because we know that cities we know that that's that's typically how cities work is creating these connections will encourage more activation more activities and more connections between people creates a better sense of community um, but then in a place like this which has been you know, as I spoke, spoke about at the beginning, it, it was this very inert territory right, in, right on the edge of these boroughs with very limited connectivity through them or across it. It's, it's, I think we should, we should allow ourselves the thought that these things do take time. You do have to build these things over a longer period, that master plans, you know, we can build, we can put a building up in the question, I mean, I, you know, I literally have just been here away for about three months and now I'm looking at this building and it's completely finished. It's extraordinary how quickly we build things. You know, we can build things remarkably quickly, but um, changing the perception of place and changing how people behave takes a lot longer, you know, and, and um, you know, we should think quite carefully about how you sort of nurture those sort of connections and sense of place and encourage more and more people to to want to explore a new a new territory and to consider it their own. It takes a long time. I wonder sometimes when we're looking at some of these urban redevelopments and we want people to come in and, and explore or to whether there's limited options for them to kind of colonize the spaces their own. It's usually quite semi-finished by the time we take the hoardings down and come in. So how, you know, how do you, um, community, con community consultation and kind of finding homes for the allotments and the, yeah. the cyclists was a big part of that Olympic story of trying to, um, and there were lots of communities that felt like that was a very dis disruptive yeah. time for them. Yeah. 
taking it, you know, now we're, it's quite a few years later, um, how are some ways that we can, you know, are there ways that the community can now come, come in and colonize that space and what would that yeah. look like? Yeah. Mm. I think that's one of the biggest challenges of mass planning at the sort of scale we're talking about here, because it's, uh, it's very macro. It's incredibly macro. And, you know, the infrastructure is big. The buildings are big. The land ownership is big. Uh, you know, and traditional cities obviously have been created. You know, we look longingly down at other bits of the city and you can, you know, they've been created. I mean, Stratford High Street, for all its problems, is a Roman road. And it's got, it's got a, a granularity and a complexity about it because it's been, it's, it's, Millions and millions of individual city decisions over over a millennium have affected how that place has how that street has developed over time, and um, you know small scale ownership has a big effect on the quality of a place. So when you have large scale ownership, it sort of becomes incumbent on those who have a lot of land to to or a lot of the area they're delivering to to try to get that granularity in. Uh, and it's it's actually quite difficult to do that because clearly you, what you want to do is try to um, emulate the all of those small individual decisions that amount to something really interesting that you see in most cities. Um, so things like the allotments, yeah, are absolutely um, important in that and bringing in uh, access to community groups to get involved in the cycling, for instance, and. Um, and, you know, Friends of the Park are just starting to get these places to operate more, less for the community, but more by the community, if at all possible. Um, and it is remarkable. I mean, I was down on the allotments a few months ago. I was invited to go and have lunch at one of the allotments. It was absolutely brilliant, meeting all the people that I'd kind of come across all those years ago in some very, very fraught and difficult conversations. But they're all down there now. And there are these extraordinary, beautiful allotments already emerging out of this place. Um, so I think it's that it is—it is about finding those interstitial spaces and having a conversation um, with people and allowing, starting to be a bit more relaxed about allowing people in to start to take control and take ownership of things, whether that's the park, whether it's allotments, whether it's um, community groups using part of our buildings, whatever it is, it's, it's, you know, those are the, those are the things we need more of. And we kind of have seeing, to do that. Um, I think it was a classic car show or something, you know, when the markets come into the park, yeah. it actually has a very different feel. Yeah. Because you do feel like you get a bit more, more of that granularity. Of that granularity yeah, yeah. The patchwork of, yeah. of, um, yeah. of, of, of owners and, I don't know, people with kind of perhaps niche interests yeah. that you might get. In, yeah in a, a piece of city which is interesting isn't it because you kind of a lot of cities do do quite easily accommodate monumental architecture. You know, actually the city and monuments have been hand in hand for <laughs> a long, long time. So how do you, it's the, it is the challenge of contemporary mass planning. How do you, how do you create within the context of this 
an, a sense of place and an environment where it feels much more inhabited. And that the park, you know, I think we probably in the end just have to be a bit patient about the park. You know, that, that if you think about other London parks, you know, Hyde Park or Victoria Park just down the road, whatever it is, I think they, they have their own character because there's a community around the edges that have, they, you know, they, they inform the character of that park and it, it's got a stability that um, creates that, ex that sense of place because it's rooted in the community that's around its edges. And I guess that's, you know, we're not, that's something that is going to, we will build that over time here because it's not finished yet. So slowly but surely the community around the edges will start to colonise this place and make the park its own. It's inevitable it will happen but it's it's a it's a slow it's a slow and steady change i think that's that's and to some extent we should just allow that change to happen um, and you know it's, it's it's interesting when you think about westfield i'm i'm always very curious about westfield because you know we can be a bit we can be a bit kind of uh, so snooty about it, oh, shopping centre. But when you go into Westfield, it's a very, it is, it is owned. There's a really strong sense of ownership of the community in, in, in that shopping centre. You're very aware that it's enjoyed by a wide, wide range of people yeah, it's who incredibly diverse. Yeah, say, yeah. Good. yeah, Diversity within Westfield is quite yeah. amazing. It's really interesting, and I sort of, if we can, if we can get that sense of ownership from Westfield out here, that would be brilliant. Uh, it is a big question because naturally the International Quarter and the Olympic Park it draws right out of there. You have to go yeah. to Westfield to get to yeah. them, um, yeah. unless you're coming from the park, but most likely mm. you're coming from Stratford. And, uh, and, and there's so many teenagers and mums with pushchairs and all yeah. kinds of different people in Westfield. Um, and, you know, teenagers in particular are somebody that you often find, you know, don't really have a place in the city that they feel yeah, very natural. No bugs them, they can hang out, they can mm. hang out with Mm. There, so it seems like a big opportunity to kind of draw them out of yeah. there. Um, but it would be interesting to know what they would say about this this place. I yeah. Mean, clearly, they like to run at golf carts. They love to jump on golf carts. Yeah. <laughs> we need more golf carts, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I suspect at the moment they would say there's probably not enough to do here. I would. I would have thought. Um, and that it doesn't feel scale. anonymous enough for well, them yet. Or maybe the scale of the spaces they can't kind of people watch with in the same. Maybe they like more niche. Yeah, more more intimate type environments. I mean, yes. I mean, this 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 bridge is particularly vast, and um, you know, you. I mean, we're sitting here because we've got something to do. We're chatting, but but not many people would sit here comfortably. Can you imagine sitting here just because you felt like sitting here? I don't no. think you would, because it's just, it feels, it's, it is just so big that it's, uh, well, we it becomes count. quite there's dynamic. Benches, and I think we're the only ones sitting. There are a few, oh, there's one a few other people. Sitting. There's a few, oh, there's, there's a few. There's some teenagers. Oh, excellent. <laughs> They're here. They've ventured out. Um, yeah, I think it is about probably creating um, spaces that feel comfortable for different groups of people. And you'd think that, I, you know, I, my, my suspicion with this space is it is just so big and there, 
that you you probably just don't feel quite anonymous enough in it. You know, it's a bit, you kind of feel a bit exposed, literally. So, um, so, but that's something that I think is changing. You know, we've, we're we're working quite hard, certainly on the international quarter bit, to create more inhabitable spaces that feel a little bit more human scaled, a little bit easier to feel comfortable in. Uh, and this, I can imagine, this place will—it will get there. It'll slowly get there and become more, more easily um, colonised. So, but a lot of it, I think, is about just cre just creating places where there's a, there's enough people to make it feel like there's stuff happening and that you kind of feel part of something without having to know what's going on. You can just sit and enjoy being there or walk in the place and feel comfortable. Uh, and at the moment, it's just. Yeah, we just that that slightly strange feeling of everything being just a little bit too big and not intimate enough. And a bit strange because the aquatic center entrance was always supposed to be up here, but yes. it's kind of down below. And you yes. think the coming and going from there would be quite would have a nice been helpful. Bit of, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. I'm not. I won't disagree with that at all. I think that would. Have, funnily enough, we were talking about that as we arrived. Yeah, they moved it for security reasons. I think I can't remember. It was an Olympic decision. I think. It was. I. It was um, because. Well, this 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 has always been a quite tricky thing architecturally because you've got you've got to you have a, you have to address the upper level and the lower level and the lower level obviously when when Stratford Waterfront is built, which is now called East Bank. East Bank, yes. When East Bank is now finished, um, the waterside is going to be a lively environment, and we may find that the um, the entrance to the aquatic centre feels a little bit more convincing at that point when more people are using the waterside. Because they'll be walking at that level. Because they'll be down there. There'll be a lot of people down there. But um, it doesn't stop the fact that there's also this this amazing entrance and architecture that's the gestural architecture of Zaha Hadid is saying, please come in here. <laughs> Talk about a welcome. And then there's a, and then there's sign a little there, sign right? saying, please go downstairs. <laughs> Uh, you know, and I think again, you know, this sort of thing—it's really interesting—the relationship between architecture and urban design here, because obviously, fundamentally, this is driven by an operational issue within the within the building itself, and it's probably they can't manage two entrances at once. So, whilst it feels compelling to have an entrance up here, and it feels sensible potentially to have an entrance down there, at some point, somebody has to make a decision. It's almost inevitable. It's the wrong one, isn't it? You know. <laughs> If it had been up here, then everyone was saying it's really dingy and horrible and boring down on the waterside. I don't know. I mean, in the end, it's the architecture thing. suggests you something. You have to go down to the changing room, so it's probably a much more seamless journey through the building to come in at, at lower level. But it's, yeah, um, it's a beautiful. I mean, all, it is, and there should be something here. And I know there were lots. There was a huge amount of effort trying to get some kind of activation up here, whether it would be a, a cafe, cafe or, or a sports environment. You know, I don't know. Mm some kind of sports brand who would have some sort of exhibition type place up there. Um, well, you've got this great awning, you could totally yes. do something under it. It does need, it desperately needs something to happen up here, doesn't it? It would help, wouldn't it? Well, I think it'd be good um, to take a walk around the Inshashi Quarter. Yeah, why don't we? Before we do, I wanted to ask just if you fast forward us uh, into the future mm. and, and we were sitting here, what, what will that be like? I think it would be extraordinary because behind us we would have an entrance to the V&A, I think, and so people, a lot of people, would be coming and going there. And I know, you know, that, you know, when you think about the V&A now, it's sort of, um, it was a dusty old institution when I was little, but now it's so exciting, isn't it? You know, they've got this fantastic Dior exhibition at the moment. They've had the David Bowie. They've had some extraordinary things there, and they've got this 
you know, this huge opportunity to create something, a really amazing type of public space up here, I think. So, uh, you know, and then obviously you can, you walk through the v and and then I think there's going to be the BBC there, and then there's going to be, what else is going to be there? There's Sadler's Wells, uh, all on this extraordinary series of buildings overlooking the river and overlooking the park. It's so, um, yeah, I think it would be absolutely extraordinary. And, I, you know, that's, so again, you know, we should just be a bit patient about creating um, the park as a place where people will increasingly feel it's theirs. Because I think the more stuff that comes in of that kind of extraordinary nature, the more, um, the more interested people will be to be here and the more comfortable I think people will be to be here. So, so there'll be that. IQL will be finished, so there'll be some fantastic spaces there to hang out in. Um, so, you know, when it's all finished, I mean, what, what you would hope to experience here would be, as I say, very akin to some of those other great parks of London, where there that real symbiosis between the park itself and what it feels like in it and the people that live and work around its edges. and that, Whoever's in there will be enjoying it because they feel it's theirs and that there's stuff to do and, um, you know, it creates this, it, it, you know, it'll be a, a place of both, I think, both local people being there and also regional and international. It should be an attractive for the whole of London as well as the country and obviously beyond. I think it would, kind of would be amazing. It feels like an amazing um Proposition like of having that, like the East, the East Bank idea, having this kind of South Bank um, of the East, mm. you know, where you would mm. come and see all of these. I'm not sure that I feel it will be the locals coming here, like the South Bank. You kind of always feel like the locals are two streets behind it, and never, never, maybe never quite coming to the the edge or using it as much. But I mean, certainly there must be um, arguments for bringing kind of a economic vitality to yeah, the area, yeah. whether that, yeah. that is a, um, a main question. Do you know, have there been kind of studies about what development around here has done for the local economy? Yeah, I think LLDC does that, does tons of studies on that. And I think it's, it's um, you know, though, though that, that's, those are the, that's the source of all that information, I would think. But um, yeah, it's, it's made a tremendous, I mean, you can see it's made a tremendous difference. Uh, you know, if you look at, the shopping centre, for instance, Westfield, it, the, the, the local jobs that are created, that have been created there, extraordinary compared with what was here before. And actually the really interesting thing is I remember all the debates and concern about the uh, shopping centre on the other side of the tracks, the old shopping centre. I'm sure I shouldn't call it that, but the one that was there first. Um, you know, I remember a lot of concern that, that this mega shopping centre coming in here on this side of the tracks would completely kill off any retail in the in the old town centre. Actually the interesting thing is it's created much more happening down there because uh, well, if, there, if there was a problem with the early thinking it was the assumption that most people would turn up here by car and actually forgetting that there was this amazing transport interchange just on the doorstep plus also a large community in the area. Uh, and uh, so people walk here, so you know, much to the surprise of the transport consultants from the day. But anyway, <laughs> I'm sure we could have all told them. But um, 
Yeah, so it's it's so that that shopping centre now has, now benefits from actually a flow through of people that otherwise wouldn't wouldn't it wouldn't work like that. They're coming and going from um, Westville, so they spend some time here and then they go back to the shopping centre, make small purchases, head home. So it's you know this it's been quite. It's quite interesting to see how that sort of those small transformative effects are having on the on the community. It's, de it's definitely changed the place, absolutely. And there, yeah, the facts and figures just go to LRDC. They'll have tons and tons and tons, I'm sure, because that's obviously their measure. That that's that's their that's what they want to to happen. So they're measured by all that. That's the legacy. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's 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 jobs and education. It's giving people better a better quality of life as a result of all this. So um, you know, and again, if the park, you know, the park itself does need to become very much at the heart of that, and I'm sure it will do. So uh, so we're starting to create a bit more. I mean, you can immediately see. Okay, now that you're in a space with. We've been, we've just behind, we've left behind us the bridge by Aquatics, which is obviously large and more empty. So we're now starting to get into an environment which is a bit more recognisably an urban environment. And uh, so we've introduced larger scale trees, catenary lighting, ground floor uses, um, all of which can spill out into these sheltered pergolas at the bottom. And so the life is starting to emerge. We've got this building here has got two occupiers in it now who are um, FCA. FCA and uh, UNICEF. Uh, and then British Council are going to be moving into that building shortly along with uh, Cancer Research. So they're kind of um, starting, starting to get a bit of a mix of... Uh, Interesting sort mix of, of third, yeah. businesses. Yes, yeah. it's not. It's not. It's not a kind of. You don't. When you hear that, you hear that range. You don't think. Yeah, I could. I could, would have known that's that's who was going to move here in the first instance. It's starting to mix it up a bit with um, third sector as well as obviously more uh, typical kind of office occupiers. So um, for these businesses, I would think. I mean, for Transport for London, you'd think that the connectivity was quite important to them. They're kind of yeah. at, a, <laughs> yeah. at a nexus point in terms of the, the infrastructure. But also perhaps for the, is that one of the major attractions is the, the connections yeah. into Stratford? Yeah, I think you're getting, you're getting a huge amount of amenity just right, right on your doorstep. So you've got the park, you've got uh, Westfield shopping, plus also the ease of connectivity into back into central London, obviously once Crossrail here is here, it's going to be opening next year. Uh, you get right across London incredibly quickly. Plus, you know, a lot of these, a lot of, you know, there's a, this, there's a huge hinterland or residential hinterland in here, this area as well. So many of the people who actually work here will live relatively locally as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of city on your doorstep, really. And you're not, not, it's not long to get to get back into central London uh, or beyond, uh, and to all the all those kind of hub points where most people come and go in terms of where they live in London, you know, whether it's South London or whatever North London. So I just want to say that the deep bass is not a sound problem. We're actually hearing that that sound. <laughs> That's um, construction. It's construction. Yeah. Something something going on. Something very low yeah. is happening. <laughs> So when we move into, is there a way into the more residential areas that are? We can walk along uh, Westfield Avenue. Yes. 
just down here. Oh, we can nip down the back here, by the by the railway. They are quite big trees. That feels yeah. like an accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's. I think it's really important. The one thing that I guess we learned this from Elephant Park, really, um, with the need to retain so many of those mature trees. Uh, you get from a from mature trees, you get kind of an instant effect, and uh, and they're valued by. Yes, I think people. You can imme it immediately. It's funny how this. I mean, this hasn't been open for very long, but because of the scale of the trees, it kind of has a, It has its own sense of not quite permanence. That's probably the wrong word, but it gives it a sort of bit of. I suppose status as a place, really. You know, you you, you realise it's not. It doesn't feel like it's just just sprung up. It's got a kind of air pollution is life. such a growing concern mm. in London too. And I know Stratford is actually not um, not that great in terms no, of, it's of not. all of the connections. So yeah. Is that something that you think is an increasing anxiety around? Um, in terms of the developments as well, people being questioning that. I mean, at Elton yeah. Castle would be another. Yeah, absolutely, place. absolutely. Yeah, I think it's something that's. Um, it's increasingly something we think a lot about in mass plans and, and landscape architecture. How can you mitigate the effect of um, of pollution? Because obviously, there's there are macro policies that the mayor is clearly dealing with, and obviously today is the first day when he's got his uh, central area where. What's it called? The, the ultra low emission zone. That's it. Zone. The ultra. That's today. So, um, so that's obviously going to have an effect. But clearly, trees and planting can have. You can design it so that it has a more. It's more beneficial or less beneficial. So obviously, we're having to think quite carefully about it to make it work well. The bigger the tree, the better, um, because obviously, not just they're not just um, decorative. Yeah, and they're 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 creating. They're great, they're great locations where actually those microparticles get stuck, basically, um, and gather together. So it does make a big difference um, to, what, to the effect. So we've come into this Tuscan residential Yes, floor, right? so we've got a, so yeah, so we've got um, the TFL building just behind us, and then the two, the two towers, one, one taller and one smaller, at the <coughs> southern end of the site, and uh, a play area just overlooking the railway um, where we've got a group of boys playing basketball. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And a carpet of all sorts of different coloured grass. Pink, pink grass, purple grass and green grass. And yellow and orange grass. It's not actually grass. It's not grass, it's pretend grass. <laughs> but there's some real grass over there. Is, there is, we're about to walk on some real grass. That feels like a bit of a of a nod to the Olympic legacy. Yes, it's got a, a slight, it's got a slight um, Olympic logo thing going on there, definitely. Um, and there's a tree inside a, there's a, a roundabout with a, a tree growing up the middle of it. It's a dizzy tree. So is it? So. I mean, it feels very tucked away. I mean, you wouldn't really know this is back here. The idea that it's mostly residents that would not really drawing in people from the, the hubbub of the, um, the main... No. 
No, it is a bit. It is a bit discreet, and um, obviously, to, to an extent, clearly, wherever you build residential, you do also have to deliver the kind of amenity space that they need. So this is partly associated with that. It's not exclusive, though, and I think the thing about how in this place will, again, it's like it's like other bits of it. It's all changing, and obviously, the more stuff happens around the edges, the different the people will will behave differently towards. Uh, these areas. So there's more development to happen on the corner on the other side of Westfield Avenue, which will look over this and people involved there will see this. Um, but the interesting thing I think is the, the way in which you can get the challenge of delivering sort of high quality play spaces for tall buildings in city centres. You, know, you can use relatively small areas to create something quite a small haven uh, and it's very interesting to stand here because you're you're we're in many respects we're not the view we can see into the park is not that different from the one we were in earlier but but it feels quite different because obviously you're now we're now viewing it from a landscape setting rather than from the the, the bridge this is all going to get built out by um, the UCL development is coming in here on these small pockets of land just south of the aquatic centre. So the view that you see here towards Canary Wharf will change, change as those buildings come forward. Um, it's quite a spectacular um, a view and you don't really expect, I mean, one of the things that, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, you forget about it and then when you show up it becomes very clear the levels in the yeah. park. You've got yeah. quite a, um, big level change from yes. the street level to the to the park majority of the park level. Yeah, yeah. Part of that is around flood. Um, it's partly around flood. It's partly the way that um, it's historic. Uh, we're standing at the moment on the old um, marshing yards that were part of the the original Westfield development, and um, this platform was created from the arisings from the um, the Channel Tunnel rail link. So, so the height we, we're experiencing now wouldn't have been where we would, we would have been standing probably three or four meters below this point back in time. But even so, going back beyond that, there are areas for the, on, on the park which were then dumping grounds for, um, for the bomb damaged buildings from the city of London as well. So there's, it, it did become a kind of area where stuff was just, you know, wiped wiped away from somewhere else and just dumped here. So, so the river became um, the levels around the river were quite high relative to the actual river height. So, if you, if you had seen the river in the it was literally like a gorge, because a lot of the land had raised around had been raised around it. So that was one of the big challenges was dealing with all these kind of, as you say, this kind of strange series of levels where some of it was quite high here. Some of it was low, like the railway lines and the river, and some of it was kind of intermediate, like where the park was. So kind of levelling or pulling back the banks of the river, connecting this higher level down into it, was quite a challenge. I mean, it was, it was an effective way of dealing with things like the railway lines, because you could go over the top of it. But then knitting around the edges has been the biggest challenge, I think. You know, when I look at, when I look at it, I think the two things that remain challenging, I think, are all of the edges. Because and how of the you get those connections? Just rail, the way that, yeah, you've got the height. years and years of, you know, the decade, the the hundreds of years of infrastructure. You know, the, the canal came in early. 
Great Western Railway, then 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 the motorway was built around the edge of it. I mean, it was just, again, because it was the back of boroughs, it was the obvious place to put all this stuff. So you ended up with this kind of really strangely exclusive place. And so, yeah, dealing with all that, it's really, really difficult, whether you're going underneath a railway, whether you're going over a railway, uh, and making them sensible places that people actually might feel comfortable in is really hard. I'm always struck because coming over to the wick and then all of a sudden you see there's these great stairs going yeah. down in the lift. Yeah, yeah. And you're thinking, How did was, that I happen? Really, yeah, was I really that high? <laughs> yeah, no, that's what it's, that's, that's, that's just the product, I think, of, the, of um, all of those layers of stuff that just ended up on the site over the years. And then the, the re-leveling that then took place prior to the games as well was another another piece of that story and the decontamination work i remember being quite extensive yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to clean yeah. out the fridge mountain and all kinds yeah of yeah it was huge huge mega piece of work the other thing you know i'm looking now down over that road and i just i remember that road i actually managed to persuade them to make it narrower can you believe it and it was it's still wider than that. yeah it was wider than that <laughs> and i was told absolutely that unless that road was that big, then then this is a transport engineer's way of describing a road. He said they said to me, Selena, unless it, unless it's that big, the whole of the transport it will fall down, which means basically you'll get lots of traffic jams. Now we can see one car which has gone the wrong way and it's turned around and gone back. I haven't seen a car other than the one that got lost yeah. on that road. <laughs> so I look at that and I just think. I, I, the lesson I've learned there is trust your instincts. If things are just looking ridiculous, they are ridiculous. It's mad. I mean, look at the size of it. It is ludicrous, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and and is I don't that, think anyone that, would disagree with me now. And was that an idea for games period? Or that was like for all of No, this was, a, this was a transformation road um, because it connects that weird scissor that you've got on the south side of the site, which is the road, road coming here that goes, takes you down into Stratford and the one that comes back up again. So it connects a loop around, so allows these two roads to connect. So it's, it's, it's so a piece... So is this a presumption in favour of the car? Is that an example yes. of how they thought people would have driven down? Uh, this is another, I think this is basically another problem that you have or something that you have to be aware of when doing master plans is that, that they are such, they're such long-term things when when the traffic the traffic assessments that were done for the olympic park were done about 2005 because a lot of it was predicated on westfield and um a lot of the assumptions that were made around again around how people would come to the shopping center were embedded in the road sizing for the olympic games because they were legacy roads so they needed to accommodate that kind of traffic of course it turned out that that wasn't how people would behave. So we were able to reduce some of the road sizes, like Westford, the um, Washington Road was reduced in size. But a lot of it, you know, and we did manage to, as I said, I did manage to get that narrowed down a little tiny bit. But it was, you know, it's one of those things with master plans where you've got, you've got historic data, you're basing a lot of your assumptions on it and trying to keep abreast of that as your master plan is being delivered. And as people's behavior is changing. I mean, I think probably when we were doing this, behavior was already quite different, but now it's changing even faster, I think, with the way deliveries are working, with the way people are now working at home more, uh, getting around in very different ways. And I think 
Well, and we are, we're obviously waiting for the transformation that will take place as a result of people using um, autonomous vehicles. We don't really know what that's going to mean. Are there going to be more vehicles on the road or less? We don't really know. So there's, there's kind of, I think change is, is afoot and it's going to happen, it's happening more quickly now than ever before. But even, and you know, and Mars Planning operates at a slightly glacial sort of timescales relative to this sort of change that you have to adapt to. So somehow we need to be able to be more adaptive and a little bit more prepared to make those adjustments. Because is that road now would be pretty difficult to get anybody to narrow it now, I would think. It would be I think I think you may you make just to make it clear there are clearly there's still no cars. There are no the cars. Road. There are more people than cars actually, which is nice to see in London, it has to be said. Um, it could well change in the future. I think the issue will be the extent to which um, how the infrastructure has been put underneath it. That's that's usually the determining factor in the size of a road in the end. You get a lot of football uh, yeah, the football. That's after true. Football, that's true. They use that. that space. You do need that space with football, but it was never designed for football fans. No, but, then that's a but that's handy. That's handy that it's there for the football fans. It's good to know that it's being used. I'm really pleased. <laughs> residential um, here in the middle of what is a construction site is that challenging are they constantly um, anxious about the about noise yeah about noise uh, yes inevitably I think wherever you again that's just one of those challenges of, of, of life in the midst of a master plan is that you you do clearly people do have to get used to and accustomed to lots of noise and uh, but they have bought into an idea of what it was going to be yeah, yeah yeah so for the most part it's merely a question of being patient with them and explaining you know when you purchased it or when you rented it you were aware of that blah 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 a lot of it is just about keeping people informed to be honest you know just making sure that everyone knows that if there is going to be a major piece of disruption you know if their road is going to be shut for whatever reason or if there's a if we're working longer hours um, I mean, obviously the trains. Yes, it's very noisy. The trains happen regularly, um, and then you know, a bit noisier than the. Uh, that's a freight train, by the look of it. Um, so all this infrastructure is an issue around around, around noise for every bit of this. But again, that's because yeah. it's bordered by very large infrastructure. Large, yeah, absolutely. When, when, um, the other thing I've sometimes encountered is that it, it can be a very windswept park. Um, you know, and I think that's always kind of a challenge with these new, new developments. Is that you know, around we don't really necessarily anticipate what the wind is going to do. I know there are wind studies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think that's well. Again, I, again, because uh, often this is a combination here of obviously having to maintain quite large areas of space alongside relatively large buildings that are relatively close together. So you do end up with. Uh, sort of local issues with um, high winds and obviously this the, because it is quite a wide expansive area you do get the wind whistling down the valley um, so again it's a it's a question of um, yeah you have to be very you have to test test uh, the plan through wind testing early on and really understand where are the issues going to be? What can you do about those issues? You can either, you can do you can do either you can change the design of the building slightly, or you can use um, landscape. Usually, it's a bit of both uh, to wherever possible mitigate it. But it's a different. I mean, obviously, the consequences are different here because it's a this this where 
Uh, Elephant Park is more um, predominantly uh, residential-led development. This is predominantly commercial-led development. So you've got a, there's slightly, you know, inevitably there's uh, different emphasis and, and outcomes, and therefore the kind of quality of the spaces or their character will be different as a result of that. Um, and, you know, and like, I think the interesting thing about these, as I said earlier, is the way in which you, you kind of, it's part of an evolution. You know, you're never quite, you should never be too fixed in your view about how things should be. You know, you're always open to a further conversation with whether it's the community, whether it's people moving into the businesses and people moving into your development, whether it's people simply walking through. You know, it's kind of, everyone has a view about what you could do better. Yeah. And, uh, I guess that's the sort of that's part of the nature of a changing place anyway. It's always got to it's you've always got to be open to keep on changing it. And no, never get too much of a fixed view about what it should be. So but the word master plan suggests that you're there master planning though, doesn't it? It's it does. Got it's got a very finite sense of purpose to it, doesn't it? And uh, Yeah, it's miss it's a sort of miss it's a misnomer in many ways because I think well as I said, I think the best master plans are the ones that really can accommodate quite significant adjustments and change, you know, and that the, their success is determined by, by what kind of momentum you can achieve, which is largely down to people buying into it, you know, thinking, actually, that works, that makes sense, that feels like the kind of place that I would like to be, whether living or working. Um, so, you know, in that sense of something having early success then generates further success, I think, and, and opens up new horizons as to what it could be. What do, how do you think master planning, that idea of master planning, needs to change? I think the big challenge we have is that obviously master plans go through a planning process. And um, so, and inevitably, obviously, that fixes things. So the extent to which you can have a very, I was going to say grown up, but that's not quite the right word, a sort of purposeful conversation with the planning authority about what you need to fix and what you need to keep flexible. I think that's, that's in the end what makes or breaks a master plan. Um, you know, you, need, you do need components in it that are going to be absolutely fixed. You know, the main armatures, the roots, and the kind of scale of those roots and how those work. Um, and why they're there in particular, what makes them work in that location. But once you've got those main armatures and you've got a broad understanding of land use, then you're kind of, what do, we, what do you really need to fix? Density, heights, to some extent, yes. But you know, they're, they're kind of, I think, I think that sort of uh, ability to have a degree of flexibility about it, I think is really where we need to get to, because as you say, it's not, there shouldn't, a master plan shouldn't really be about, this is absolutely what it's going to look like at the end. It's a journey, isn't it? It's about a process and time is the biggest single factor and the way in which that, um, the way in which you can build success over that time will have a huge effect on how successful your master plan is going to be at the end. And you don't really want it necessarily to look like you wanted it at the beginning. You really do want it to change because that means you've been successful. You've increased land values, which means others are coming in and investing. Um, so yeah, I think it's, 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 
In the end, it all does come down to the extent to which you have got a flexible framework, I think. You know, too much flexibility is a problem. Too little is also a problem. Too much, you just get, you just get people doing whatever they want and you get no control. And it's probably short-term decisions are not always the best basis for making a long-term place. But I think once you've got the basics there, that's it, you know. So, yeah, master plan is probably the wrong word. I'll have to think of another one. Unplanning, unmaster planning. <laughs> Incremental unmaster planning. Flexi planning. <laughs> flexi planning, yeah. <laughs> oh God, what's it today? Flexi, flexi, flexi extension today. We're at Brexit. We're in the midst of flex, Brexit, flexi extension. That, that's that will time time this discussion. <laughs> thank you very much thank you thank you i enjoyed it this podcast has been brought to you by the developer produced by simon mercer with music by fortet i'm christine murray and you can reach me on twitter at, at tc murray 